Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Balaguer Guitars. Founded in 2014, Balaguer Guitars strives to bring modern aesthetics and options to vintage-inspired designs. Go to balaguerguitars.com for more info. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Fishman, inspired performance technology. Fishman is dedicated to helping musicians of all styles achieve the truest sound possible wherever and whenever they plug in. Go to fishman.com for more info. Hey, it's Jesko from uh, AcousticsInsider.com. I'm back. Uh, <laughs> first of all, thanks to Eyal uh, and uh, Joey and Joel for having me on the podcast once again. And I'm here on a, uh, for a Dear Jesko episode uh, to answer some of your questions. Um, so let's get right to it. So the first one's from Jake Ottinger. Otting Ottinger? Ottinger? I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but uh, sorry, Jake, <laughs> if I'm butchering your name here. I'm just going to say it in German. Ottinger. Jake Ottinger. So uh, Jake says, what's the best way for me to use a sub? I live upstairs from the crappiest neighbors on the planet that complain about every little thing to the landlords. I was thinking about one of those bass shaker things to put on my chair. I have a sub, but can only use it when they're gone. But I'd really need a I really need a solution for late at night. Any thoughts? Ah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I guess there are just uh, some situations uh, where there's just not much you can do. I, I definitely had uh, had <laughs> had that situation before, um, when when there's just neighbors who are, uh, yeah, just not willing to play along. I think. Yeah, the best. I, I doubt that there's anything you can do with with speakers, to be honest, uh, because if they're that sensitive, they'll complain about everything. So, uh, I I don't think I'd try. I don't think I'd. Uh, I think yeah. I think uh, it's probably best to just avoid it completely. Yeah, you might you might be uh, one of those uh, base packs that that you put on your chair might work. I haven't tried them. People seem to like them. I have no idea. I don't have any experience with them, but they might work. Um, my tip would be headphones. Quite simple. Uh, to be honest, it's, uh, I think that's a good tip for anyone out there. If, if you're just starting out or if you really have no way to improve your uh, listening situation, if it's, just, uh, it's, it's, it's just impossible, either financially or otherwise, you should just invest in a good pair of headphones. Um, they will last you a long time and... Uh, money invested in headphones is very well spent. I'm, I'm thinking around the like $300, sort of 300 euro mark. That's a, that's a very good pair of headphones. I used to use the um, Biodynamic uh, DT990s, um, an open-backed pair. And um, you should definitely want to get an open back pair if you're just mixing or just uh, just kind of producing, working. Like if you're recording, a closed back pair is what you want. I don't really know why they have the semi semi open headphones. <laughs> I don't really see a point for them, but whatever. So yeah, get an open back pair, a good one, around 300 euros, 300 dollars, and kind of that realm. Um, that's very well invested money. Uh, at the moment, I use the Shure. Uh, what are they called? I'm actually wearing them right now. Uh, Shure SRH1440. It's the sort of lower priced option um, of two models, and uh, they are excellent. I was really, really impressed uh, when I when I tried them out in the shop, um, and I've tried a quite. I, I went through quite a few different pairs of headphones, so um, you definitely want to try a few. Get, go out there and try a few because uh, the price, unfortunately, doesn't guarantee 
a good pair of headphones. One thing to to listen out for um, when you're when you're checking headphones is the stereo image. I'm I'm a big nut for getting a good stereo image, for getting a good sound stage. So you can pan properly. You can actually tell where something is located in the pan, in the, in the stereo panorama, um, how wide things are. Like if it's like super spread out in the stereo field, if the like how far that's that's happening, what's actually happening there. And I remember I tried a pair by. Uh, what was it? Audio Technica. I don't think it was Audio Technica. It was something else, uh, some other brand. But um, they were around three hundred euros, and they were horrible. <laughs> like I couldn't tell on a track that I mixed. I couldn't tell whether the bass was mono or stereo, and that's just not a good sign. That means like the the drivers in the in in the, the both drivers aren't matched properly, and there's some phase indiscrepancy there that actually. Um, makes uh, the the sound sort of fake stereo in quotation marks. Um, that's that's not a good sign. So like you want to you want to be able to tell if um, if something is mono. You want to be able to place it properly in the sound stage. And then there's obviously um, frequency balance. To be honest, frequency balance I don't think is as important. Like you do want to have something that feels good to you, but a a a good time response uh, is more important than a sort of flat frequency response so there there are headphones out there which really kind of mush the the low end and um i would to be honest i would count the biodynamics among those and that's what i was so impressed with when i first listened to the shure headphones um that their their timing in the low end is super crisp super tight and you don't get a lot of energy it's like it almost feels like there's no bass but it actually goes down really low it's just that it's it's fairly low and level so um but this is again something that you want to compensate with or you can compensate with uh, matched loudness uh, referencing so get to get to know your headphones get a good pair of headphones get to know your headphones and you should have no problem and then and then judging bass will actually be much easier and much more straightforward than trying to do it in, in very uh, suboptimal listening conditions or, <laughs> like in your case, Jake, uh, <laughs> with no bass, basically. So yeah, Jake, that would be my answer to you. So the next question is by Michael Depre. De, Depre? <laughs> it's a French name. Sorry again for the last name. He says it's pronounced Depre. So Michael Depre. Uh, Michael, you, you say, uh, you ask, um, in the previous podcast you talked about finding the sweet spot for your speakers in your room. How do you go about doing this? At the moment, I'm just moving my table around in my room, and I think I have a cool spot, in, in brackets, speakers about 55 centimeters from the wall. But what should I listen out for? Okay, so I briefly went through this in, in the last episode, and you can definitely read up on finding the, 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 a good sweet spot um, uh, in an article I wrote for on the, on the URM blog called Fixing Your Low End Without Knowing Anything About Acoustics. But I'm actually a bit confused about your question because you say finding the sweet spot for your speakers. So if you're talking about positioning your speakers, I do that relative to the sweet spot. So I find my, my listening sweet spot first. And once I've determined that, then I position my speakers relative to that sweet spot. So uh, in that case, you want to start off with the sort of standard rules for setting up an equilateral triangle with your speakers. Uh, and then you can, you can kind of go from there. Actually, you should probably sign up to my email list because I'm going to, I'm going to go through this uh, in, more, in more detail at soon, soon. 
um, I'm actually gonna. I think I'm gonna write a, a like a proper guide about this. How to how to position your sweet spot and how to then position your speakers so you get the best of both worlds. So you kind of get to pick your sweet spot, your listening sweet spot for uh, the best um, bass uh, response, the best compromise in the in the low end that you can get from your room, and then how to position your speakers appropriately so that the the spot where your speakers give you the best sound stage is the same as the spot for the best bass so that that way you actually have a listening spot that gives you good bass and a good stereo image and um, yeah you want to look out for that um, I, I, don't, I don't think I should go through it again right now it's uh, you can definitely read up on, about it um, on the URM blog so check that out so the next question is by Ryan Bridges. Hey, Ryan. Um, he says, I have a small room, 16 by 10 by 8 feet, 7 inches, is that how you say it? <laughs> I have bass traps in the corners from floor to ceiling. I have four early reflection panels, uh, 2 feet times 4 feet times 3.5 inches deep in my listen position. My question, I get really bad 190 to 230 hertz build up. What should I do? It feels like it builds right behind my computer monitor. Your podcast was awesome. Thanks for your time. Later. Thanks, Ryan, for the question. Um, so, I, the, first of all, that's a that's a that's a pretty good start. So, you have four panels to deal with the early reflection points. I guess that's what you're what you're saying. The buildup in the sort of low mids. It's very difficult to say right now where that comes from. There are definitely speakers that have a low mid build up it's possible that your room uh, depending on what materials are in your room that your room actually kind of sucks out energy above the those low mids so it's it, you're you're kind of left with more energy in the low mids because the high mids are are sort of reduced more so this is like if you have like a sort of a broad bump in your frequency response, that's the time. Now is the time to pull out an EQ. So this is kind of the 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 the, um, the right scenario to use EQ on uh, on your on your listening um, setup. And you might, depending on what speakers you use, you know, there might be an EQ on the back of your speakers that you can use for this. You could try either yeah reducing the um, sort of uh, around the 200 hertz mark, or you could try boosting above that. Um, although I'm I always recommend to just to cut if you can on speakers and because of, of uh, headroom um, for your amplifier but uh, yeah so this you could try positioning your speakers slightly differently so you could try and see if you change uh, your stereo triangle slightly either by moving your speakers closer to you or moving them further like sort of further apart from each other so making the stereo uh, triangle larger um, you could definitely try one of those uh, methods to see if um, if that changes the the frequency balance in the low mids um, but um, again, this is this is like a sort of a typical typical um, typical scenario where where I would say get to know what if it, unless it's really really bad, but uh, get to know what your what your your speakers sound like using uh, equal loudness referencing, and then just mix accordingly, unless you have yeah options to. Um, to maybe get an EQ or use an EQ or uh, rather uh, or move your move your speakers a bit to see to see if that changes something. 
Let's hope that helps. So the next question is from Andre Six from my hometown of Brussels. Hey, Andre, how's it going, man? Um, he says, for a workflow junkie that you are, you must have plenty of other cool work workflow tricks and improvements that speed up or facilitate your mixes. Can you share a few? And he asks, uh, do you have a pre-mix routine to help you get in the right mind space and be able to tune out distractions? And he says uh, to Eyal, he says, uh, thanks for bringing Esko on. He's incredible. <laughs> thanks, Andre, man. So first of all, um, so it's uh, yeah, workflow tricks. Let, let me think about this. So there are a couple of things that I, well, let's, let's start with my pre-mix routine, maybe because that kind of goes, uh, walks me through the process sequentially. I, de I definitely prepare my, my mix very, very meticulously. I have a template that I use, as many people do, um, with colors, uh, with a proper naming scheme. I, uh, I do all the technical work before I actually start the mix. So I do the technical work on the on the, the tracks that I use, sort of like the exported stems. I do all the technical processing on those before. So that means loading up the track, setting uh, initial levels so that the, the so that it, because of this whole uh, equal loudness uh, referencing and 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 uh, Sort of calibrated loudness listening thing. I make sure that my levels, my, my the track is at the, at the average level that I like to listen at. I make sure that uh, I go through each track individually and I I clean it up if any cleaning up needs to happen. I I do do any low cuts. Um, I do any edits that I need to do if there's like pops, clicks, noise, any kind of stuff like that to remove. So yeah, all the sort of not so creative stuff, all the technical stuff and like sort of prep work, I do that on one day and then I only start mixing the next day. So I actually, when I, uh, so it's kind of like, I'm kind of my own assistant, I guess. Um, so I come in the next day and then I have the project ready to go and I can, I can dive right in. And so the first thing that I do, so I'll have two or three references um, loaded up in uh, my project, again, matched loudness to my project so the first thing that I'll do the next day when I come in is that I'll sit down and I'll listen to two three tracks reference tracks that I picked the day before um, and I'll listen to them at, at the matched loudness to prime my brain to sort of uh, train my brain into what my loudspeakers what my system sounds sounds like on that particular day to me and and that kind of gets me started so i'll just sit here and i'll just kind of mess around on my phone or whatever it doesn't i don't really pay conscious attention although sometimes sometimes i do if i like the track but sometimes i just sit here and fiddle for like 10 15 minutes and and listen to two three reference tracks and then i'll jump right in and the first thing that i'll do when i mix is i'll change i'll set levels and i'll set the levels really quickly um i'll do the initial levels using a clip gain just use it just changing the the the, the volume of the the actual wave file the waveform because yeah, I, don't, I don't actually use the faders funnily enough they're all just there just sit there and <laughs> they don't do anything so i mix without faders 
And so that's the first thing I'll do I'll, I'll, because I'm fresh. And the most important thing to mixing is balance. Like, I mean, mixing engineers used to be called balance engineers back in the days when they didn't have all the tools available that we have now. They just had some faders and all they could do is change the actual volume after the tracks were recorded. So they used to be called balance engineers. And it's still very much like that now. The, the main thing, our jobs as a mixer is to is to set the balance and the the better you you get at at and controlling volume at manipulating volume at at using volume creatively the better your mixes be because it is by far the most exp expressive tool in our in our uh, toolkit so um, that's what i that's what i go for first and uh, i'll do that quickly and i'll do that swiftly and And after that, I'll, uh, yeah, either I'll usually take a break or um, I'll f dig in if I need to do any EQ. But as it ha so happens, if the balance is right, you'll notice that there's only, there's like, you'll really notice which, which tracks need to be EQ'd or like where I want to change the, the tonality or the color or, uh, or the sort of timbre or the dynamics of, of a certain um, stem. And so that's, that's what I'll do then. And um, yeah, I'll, I always make sure to have a first track, a first mix ready to export by my first, after my first session. So um, by the end of my first session, I want to have a track ready to export and I'll export that right away. I'll, I'll remove the excess headroom uh, using a limiter. So I'll just very gently sort of push the track into a limiter. So, but just to the point where it's, it's, it's not changing the sound, but I get a decent amount of, of sort of volume from the, from the file and, and then I'll export it and I'll put it on my MP3 player and, uh, and then I won't listen to it until the next day. And then same thing um, because we we're so we're so we're our, our, we're so brainwashed I guess we're uh, our our brains are so primed so quickly I don't listen to the track at all until I'm ready to take notes and then I'll I'll sit down I'll have my my notepad ready on my phone I'll, I'll take notes in Evernote and I'll listen again I'll listen to two those two same two three reference tracks and and just sit there and listen to those and prime my brain on my in-ears, my tiny little cheap-ass uh, Sony headphones and uh, at home. And I'll, uh, I'll prime my brain with those three reference tracks and then I'll listen to my mix and I'll, I'll start taking notes right away. I'll, I, I, fin I, I, I don't stop the, the music, I make sure I'm not distracted. And um, I listen to the song once and I take notes, anything that comes to mind. It doesn't matter if it's big or small, anything I notice, Even if, if I don't think it's particularly important, uh, it doesn't matter. I write down everything. And, and then I'll do a second pass and I'll double check and see if, anything, if, any, if I notice anything else or if any of those things that I noticed kind of um, relativize themselves. Maybe, maybe I, I notice that I actually like the feeling that it generates, that weird thing that I noticed before. And so, yeah, and then once I've done that, I have a list of changes and I go back to the studio and I open the session and I usually maybe I don't, uh, yeah, I don't even listen to the track again. I think I'll just <laughs> literally start making the changes and uh, I'll pretty much, I'll just do what I wrote down. So I don't even, I don't even judge whether that made any, so yeah, I mean, I do judge if that makes, made sense that what I wrote down, but like, 
I won't listen to it again and see and kind of try and figure out if all of those are valid, all the points that I wrote, wrote down. But I'll, I'll start and I'll, I'll, I'll make changes. And once again, I'll start with the sort of the big changes. So if there are any big, important volume changes that I decided to make, I'll start with those first because they're because volume is the most important thing so i always start with the the sort of big volume changes and then i work my way through my list sort of to smaller and smaller bits and usually by that time i'm pretty happy i'll, I'll once again i'm done with the session so i'll export the track and if i have time i'll listen to it again the next day otherwise i'm usually by that point i'm happy with the mix and i'll send it off to the client and i'll just await their feedback and um, i might listen to it again before or until they send me feedback and I'll make some more notes uh, or I'll just wait to see what they say, first of all. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my process. It's very, I think it's really important not to get hung up listening to your, your mix or your project. It's because our brains are primed so easily and our auditory memory is so, so short and we kind of get up, we kind of get involved in the emotions so quickly. If you want to work, work. And don't get tempted to listen to the track just for fun or to just listen to it unless you're, you're listening to it for a specific purpose. Um, I think that's really, really important uh, because you lose objectivity so incredibly quickly. You, do, you just you don't want to you don't want to waste a judging capital on 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 useless listening. Yeah, I guess that's uh, I hope that helps, <laughs> Andre. Okay, off to the, on to the next question. This is from Michael, and he says, Hey, Al. Hey, Yesco. I've already talked with Yesco about this topic, but, uh, topic, but I think it could be interesting for the Q&A. Uh, is it useful or necessary to have an air gap behind the acoustics foam, and why? He also has another question, but let me get to that later. Um, so when you're considering a, a mineral or an, an insulation material absorber, you always have to think... You kind of you kind of have to have to have to think as uh, of the absorber and the air gap as one absorber system. So like the air gap plus the material is the actual absorber, and you basically increase low frequency absorption by making your absorber deeper. So the air gap kind of is like saying instead of like you could put as like i always say i always talk about the six inches right six inch uh, deep material of the, the that particular weight class so you could you could say putting a six inch absorber on the wall directly on the wall is the same as putting a four inch absorber on the wall with a two inch air gap and the reason is that the material close to the wall is actually hardly effective that has to do with particle velocity so um if you read my article on acousticsinsider.com about um the best kind of insulation material. I talk about how how uh, absorption material, how insulation material absorbs sound, and it works by by uh, friction with the motion of the air particles. That's called sound velocity. That uh, that variable that acousticians talk about. So, sound velocity actually decreases the closer you get to the wall. And basically, you can imagine right up against the wall, there's no space for the actual air particle to move because it's right up to the now right next to the wall, and that means that any any insulation material at right up to the right up against the wall is pretty much non-effective so that's why the the material closest to the wall is it kind of loses efficiency it becomes it, it loses effectiveness so you 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 don't need that material right up against the wall instead you could just use an air gap 
or you could just leave that space empty, right? So so now you can kind of see how this starts to make sense. Or put obviously put in a different way, if you just have four inches of material, you can fake a six-inch absorber by just putting it uh, two inches away from the wall, right? And that's the same thing that happens with base traps. If you put a six-inch mineral wool or insulation material absorber diagonally across the corner, you have that air gap behind behind the panel, and instead of filling it with material, you just leave it empty because the material in there is hardly effective. Um, so that's kind of the that's kind of the way to think about the air gap. I build six inch inch panels for both for base traps and for uh, panels on the early reflection points and otherwise, simply because it's easy, <laughs> um, and because like insulation material hardly costs anything. So uh, I always build the same type of panel. That way, I'm flexible if I want to use it for um, absorption at early reflection points or as base traps, right? Uh, but the, the the panel actually increases its effectiveness by putting it diagonally across the corner because it automatically inherently creates this air gap behind the panel. So I hope that answers your question. And the second part that you asked, the second question was, what would be a possible career path if someone wants to pursue a career as an acoustic mastermind? <laughs> and Thanks. I, well, I'm just going to take that as a compliment. Thank you. And consultant for recording and mixing studios. What would be a possible career path uh, if someone wants to pursue a career? Okay. I <laughs> should probably ask Brian Hood. He's the expert on this uh, <laughs> with his uh, uh, home studio, six-figure home studio blog, which is an excellent blog. You should definitely check that out. Um, hmm, how should I, how can I answer that? If you want to, so um, it's definitely, there are two, it's definitely two different things. Like acoustics is, is definitely more science than recording or mixing i think the, all the sort of uh, the the recording engineer sound engineer specialities are definitely creative jobs and the the acoustics uh, the sort of acoustician job is part creative and a lot of science as well so first of all if you're uncomfortable with the science it's possibly not for you apart from that what yeah i mean i can i all i can really tell you is how 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 i got into all of this i'm not sure if that's going to help but um so how did i start i i basically i started i started playing music playing piano when i was 6 or 7 years old um played piano for 9 years played drums and then got into production fairly on like sort of just like composing songs on a keyboard uh, when I was like 12 or 13 and I moved on to like computer computerized music fairly fairly quickly after that and I just kind of did it as a hobby and I then studied uh, aerospace engineering at university so I got my master's degree in aerospace engineering but it always kind of uh, yeah I always did music first of all as a hobby on the side um, just producing electronic dance music house drum and bass hip-hop this sort of stuff and then after I finished my degree, I really, I, I really wanted to see if there was like a bridge between, if I could somehow bridge my engineering knowledge and my, my passion for music. And so I went to university again here in Berlin 
uh, for and did another master's. Well, I actually didn't finish it, but <laughs> that's another story. So I actually went to university again for um, uh, doing a course called Audio Communication and Technology, and that was actually perfect in bridging bridging that that science and sort of creative gap and uh, we did a whole lot of stuff from acoustics to to um, recording technology microphones loudspeakers but then also history of music music theory empirical research into music uh, psychoacoustics all of that was part of that course um, and I kind of I did I went through all of that I didn't actually do the actual master's thesis because I, by the time I got up to it I was actually working full-time and I decided it wasn't worth it but I was lucky because uh, friends of of mine uh, were already quite established electronic music producers here in Berlin. And um, I actually tried to, I, I, I attempted, I made an attempt at offering a consultancy service to, to build studio infrastructure. So like, like hardware infrastructure, like helping people figure out their workflows and figuring out the technology and making it all work and putting it together. And I quickly discovered there wasn't a market for that. But I was always really good at, or I, I really enjoyed mixing and people commented on, on my mixes. And so I, uh, that's around the time when when Pensado's place started. And I remember watching that and going, oh, oh wow, there's, there's a job, there's a, there's a, you can be a mixing engineer <laughs> and these guys earn money. And, and I was just like, okay, that's awesome. So um, why don't I give that a shot? And so I kind of decided to, to, to put all my effort into that. And um, so I spent a year basically studying mixing. So I, uh, I, I read a lot of books. I read Mixer Man, aka Eric Zarafin's book, Zen and the Art of Mixing, and as, uh, I can't remember what his name is, Zoe Yaki, Roe Yaki, or something like that. Uh, he had this mixing book, like the sort of a really big fat book on mixing. I read through all of that. I studied that, and I downloaded a lot of free uh, session files uh, from all sorts of genres, and I just practiced mixing. So I would mix the same song over and over and over again. And so these buddies of mine who were music producers here, they actually offered to help me out and give me work to mix, uh, basically mix, uh, gave, me, gave me their tracks to mix when I didn't have a name out there. And, and so um, because I did some, I helped them out with their computer infrastructure. So these guys, these were somewhere I kind of, I built their whole setup, both of their studios um, and kind of gave them like IT support for life, basically. So these guys, they helped me out by giving me uh, projects to mix. And uh, so I basically mixed for them exclusively for about a year and practiced mixing on the side uh, when I when when I didn't when they didn't give me anything and so uh, yeah that I did that for about a year and obviously talking to people and these guys they got my name they kind of recommended me they mentioned me in like blogs and when they were interviewed and stuff like that and so kind of like very slowly my, my name kind of trickled out there and uh, and then I got my then like the first sort of other people started getting interested interested they, they also cooperated with a lot of other people on projects like uh, sort of producing uh, tracks with other people and so like they started knowing like hearing my name and the mastering engineers that we worked with would hear my name and so like I can't remember exactly when but eventually sort of the first few people two three people started asking me if I could mix their projects and 
And I definitely, it's uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, at that point, it was it was still sort of very budget work that I, I would I would offer my my work for sort of very budget price um, because I didn't I couldn't yeah I couldn't <laughs> I didn't have the qualifications I guess or the, the the name to to ask for more money. And to be honest, I wasn't I wasn't good enough to to ask for more money either. But so for the sort of very very uh, very reasonable price, I would mix tracks for other people. Uh, I started mixing for some other people, and um, yeah, and that's kind of sort of there yeah, then it's, it's, that kind of got the ball rolling and yeah and the sort of the mastering engineers that I work, work with I, I got on really well with them and so they actually started recommending me to 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 clients of theirs um, I, I guess when people are, like people approach them and and then they sort of realized that what they really needed was a good mix first of all and and uh, if they, they they kind of knew my price point and so they would kind of re- recommend me uh, as a as a mixer at their price point and um, I think that's that's kind of the the important thing to, to understand here is that when you're starting out you really got to work with the people who are at your level and if you do a good job and if you get along with people and you should and you always should make an effort then you'll grow together with your clients so you'll grow your expertise you'll grow your your uh, your knowledge your name along with your clients and so like it's i think i think you really want to aim for if you're starting out you want to aim for people who are at your level and and just learn learn the, obviously the work the sort of the, the the musical work but also learn the the business side of it the the sort of relation relating to clients how to work on projects how to stay on budget and on time um, or rather how to stay on time so you can stay on budget uh, yeah so that's I think that's that's my uh, my answer to your question yeah I think I hope that <laughs> I hope that answers it. So yeah, Michael, there you go. On to the next one. This is by my good buddy Cot. This is so. This is one of the two guys who I was just talking about. <laughs> Uh, and um, he asks. Uh, he says, "Dear Yesco, since I moved into a new flat with my project studio, I was thinking about uh, turning a small room next to it, two meters times one point four meters times two and a half meters in height, into a recording booth, especially for vocal recordings. Does that make any sense? If so, how should I treat the room?" Or should I rather record in my 25 square meter control room? Thanks for all your advice. It's, it has been helping me so much for years now. Best quad. Awesome. Dude, quad. Love you so much, man. So yeah, this is a, I think this is a good point. Like vocal booths, recording booths. So in terms of acoustics, there's some one thing to realize. A small room will sound like a small room. <laughs> and getting a small room to sound good is not easy. So unless you need the isolation the like proper isolation of a separate room i always advise to stay away from recording booths or just small rooms for 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 recording because there are so many things that speak for um recording in like right next to you in your control room or in your project studio uh not just uh, well first of all just the connection that you have with the performer you can talk to them directly you can see how they act how they react you can hear what they are singing or saying or playing and uh and it's it's so much more intimate it's so much more direct um so um i think uh, there's definitely something there said there to to say about uh the just the quality of the interaction and so that's but if you're if you really need the isolation for one reason or another full disclosure here i've i haven't had to treat a 
a, a tiny vocal booth recording booth yet thankfully so uh, so I'm kind of saying this more from theory than anything else but if you wanted to treat a small room like that I mean you still have to get all the reflections under control and you have to get all the especially if you're recording uh, instruments or in, in that occupy low frequencies you have to get the low frequencies under control and uh, positioning in such a small space is very limited like you, what you can do i mean you should try and get the most from positioning but it's not easy so so you need to get that under control as well so you basically need a lot of well, a lot of broadband trapping. Um, you need to get the reflections under control that happen around. Well, just <laughs> basically everywhere. <laughs> I'm not really sure how to answer this in a better way. But uh, I mean, obviously, start with if you're recording a vocal, for example, uh, or if you record only vocals, start with treating the the walls at the height of the the head 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 height and at microphone height because on that plane that most of the reflections or that most of the energy is going to go right back into the microphone so you kind of that's where you want to start but then obviously the scening is going to be is going to be really close as well so you want to definitely treat that you yeah you definitely want to treat this the 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 wall behind the singer because if you're using a cardioid mic uh, it's going to be really sensitive for anything that that reflects back off behind off of the wall behind the the performer and yeah in terms of like that's so that's just in terms of that's just getting controlling reflections or if you want to control the low end if you want to control bass I think there's, I mean, there's one really good article on, or they used to be, they just say change their website. I think it might be gone now, but they used to have an article on there where they treated a vocal booth and they used a limp mass uh, absorber. So it's basically a heavy, heavy foil, like a heavy tarp that they hang off of the, the wall. It's kind of free hanging that will pick up the energies in the low end and, and kind of dampen them out. And I, I haven't used these kind of hanging foils, these, these loose membranes as a bass trap. So I can't say just how good they work but they're fairly shallow which is an advantage in in such a small space so um it might make sense to uh like they did in the sound on sound uh, article to actually treat one entire wall with a gig like a big heavy loose membrane like a heavy foil or something and these really need to be heavy like I don't, I'm not sure if a, a carpet will do but yeah so that's that's my advice um, unless you need the, the, the isolation I'd probably recommend to just s stay away from recording moves <laughs> Uh, it's just asking for trouble. So moving on to the next question. This one's from um, Theodore Curtis. Theodore, sorry. Um, Theodore Heyman. He says, can you make some recommendations for mixing headphones, brands, styles, etc.? I'm currently using Audio-Technica ATH M50s and they translate okay, but they're not good at revealing low end in a mix. I know you guys speak highly on treating your space and then condone headphone mixing. However, my options are limited right now and having to share space with my family and dogs is hard to mix on my monitors. I really like the podcast with Jesko Lohan on treating your space. I'm just not able to do at this time. Thank you guys for all you do. Um, thanks, Theodore, for the question. Um, so, yeah, I mentioned this, uh, actually mentioned this in the answering the first question. So, yeah, I'm, uh, if, you're, if you're mixing open-backed headphones, if you're recording closed-backed headphones, and uh, spend some money on headphones. Uh, <laughs> it's, 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 it's very well invested money. If you are, I, yeah, I would, I would actually buy a good pair of headphones before I buy a decent pair of monitors because 
with the, with the monitors comes treating the room and it's just if you're really if you're right at the beginning you will have so much more effect you will have such a so, so much more advantage uh, such a so, or, yeah um, a lot larger advantage from just getting really good headphones um, than from buying medium speakers uh, medium price speakers and and working in a small room um, so yeah if you if you're just starting out that's that's my recommendation and uh, like i said the sure srh 1440s are the ones that i use i love them the more expensive model the 1480s i believe are definitely even better but they're pricey um but yeah so that's uh, that's what I recommend. Hope that helps. Uh, the next question is by Daniel McNeil. Hey Daniel, he says my question is about bass traps. When using six, six inch panels across a corner to help control bass, is it beneficial to build the trap from floor to ceiling, or is it okay if the panel is in the middle of the wall? My understanding is that bass builds up in tri corners more than it does in a corner with two walls. So would making two traps to go across the top and bottom of the wall or the entire length be the best? Thanks for all the info you've shared. It's been extremely well helpful. You're welcome, Daniel. Um, thanks for the question. Okay, so there's, um, there's a common misconception about, about base trapping um, that I should really talk about. So basically the, the thing is, when you're base trapping, and I'm I'm gonna use base trapping as a, uh, synonymously with with reducing room modes. When you're trying to tame room modes, the the thing with room modes is that this thing that I talked about in the other in the other question, this the the particle velocity, the the sound velocity, so the the movement of the air particles, is actually not in sync with sound pressure. So sound velocity in a standing wave is 90 degrees out of phase with sound pressure. So what that means is the places where there's the most sound pressure are the places with the least sound velocity. And so actually placing a mineral wall panel that absorbs sound velocity, placing a mineral wall or an insulation uh, material panel in a high pressure area is actually the least effective place to place a base trap, a, uh, a mineral wall panel. So actually, if you're looking for the best, if you only have a few places uh, to, or if, sorry, if you only have a few a few base traps and you want to place them in the uh, place them the, for the most effective reduction of room modes, you need to find the place, the the position along a corner where that particular frequency, the particular of that particular room mode has no sound pressure because that's going to be the place with the highest particle velocity, theoretically. So this is, this is kind of where you want to start. But then there's also something to be said about the, the general approach of, of bass trapping. And I always kind of compare it to like kind of a shotgun approach, like using broadband panels, using insulation material panels as base traps is very much sort of a shotgun approach. You kind of aim generally in the right direction and use a lot of pellets and just kind of hope something hits sort of thing, right? So that's why I always advise or like that's why I advise to cover, if you can, cover the entire corner from one side to the other, from floor to ceiling, with base traps because the different room modes will actually have their points of highest particle velocity or highest sound velocity at different places along the corner 
And by placing panels across the entire length of the corner, you can make sure you'll make sure that you'll actually have a panel in the optimum place for every room mode. So this is one of the issues if you're, for example, if you're if you only have a couple of base traps and you actually put them only in the vertical corners, there are room modes whose who uh, whose frequency don't have any point of highest particle velocity in that particular corner so you, it might be really effective at reducing one or like certain frequencies certain room modes but it might be not effective at all at reducing others so you kind of want to you want to spread out your base traps along all the different corners that you have available and you want to start with the points of lowest pressure or highest particle velocity Okay, and so like obviously you need to figure out what your room modes are first of all, where what the culprits are. Then you kind of you got to play those sine waves, and then you can check along your corners to figure out where those points are. So in terms of a- answering the questions, the tri corners are actually theoretically the least effective places to have insulation material absorption panels for base, and that's why you'll actually see that in many of the studios that I build, I don't I don't worry about shaping some particular tri-corner absorber uh, to fit in that space. If it's left empty, I, I just don't care. Obviously, this is theory, and in practice, there's a whole mumbled, mumbo-jumbo of room modes and energies flying around, so like you, you will get some uh, absorption if you put a panel in the, in the sort of tri-corner. It's just that theoretically, it's not the best place to start, and, um, and if you want to follow theory, <laughs> you want to start with the places of highest particle velocity or lowest pressure in terms of room modes. Okay, uh, so yeah, <laughs> I, hope, I hope that helps. And uh, finally, we have a question from uh, Runar Magnussen. Hey, Runar, a regular awesome dude. Um, so he says, uh, so my question regards how well your bass hunter technique r- translates to tracking. For instance, if recording a bass guitar cabinet, instead of carrying the cabinet around the room while the musician is playing to find a balanced spot, could it instead be placed in a corner while going around in the room to find the sweet spot? And after finding that spot, could the mix simply be placed there and the cabinet in front of it? The same question goes for, of course, for drum kits, guitar caps, and other instruments with a healthy amount of low end and low mids. So, so first of all, uh, I guess so. Um, I I do mixing mainly, so I don't have much experience uh, recording. I've recorded vocals, but like uh, and a guitar once in a while, but I haven't recorded bass or drum kit yet. So I don't. I can't really judge. For, I can't really say from experience. But in theory, it should definitely help you find the spot in your room. Like to sort of, it should help you get get in the ballpark. I mean, obviously, like you want to tailor the sound from your recording, uh, from your from your amp to the sound that you're looking for in your mix, right? So, I guess like there's like uh, you definitely should keep that in mind. Um, obviously, um, that like the sort of tonality and the color you're looking for is is more important than. Or is important rather than and, and not just getting a balanced sound, but um, I guess um, f- 
as a starting point it's probably it should work <laughs> because the um, because the, the the sort of the the idea behind the room modes and how they how they work and and uh, figuring out where they balance against each other and the sort of best way um, where the compromise between them is the best the, that technique s- still applies so um I guess it works. Uh, try it out and let me know. <laughs> That'd be awesome. All right. Thanks uh, for listening. And AR again, uh, Joey Joe, thanks for having me on. Um, all the best to you guys. Uh, if you have any more questions, if you're interested in all this stuff, come find me at uh, acousticsinsider.com. And uh, yeah, speak soon. Bye-bye. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Balaguer Guitars. Founded in 2014, Balaguer Guitars strives to bring modern aesthetics and options to vintage-inspired designs. Go to balaguerguitars.com for more info. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Fishman, inspired performance technology. Fishman is dedicated to helping musicians of all styles achieve the truest sound possible wherever and whenever they plug in. Go to Fishman.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit NailTheMix.com slash podcast and subscribe today.